theoretically, I think we're live. Hey everyone, welcome to another uh, randomly uh, generated open space uh, guest interview uh, here on my channel. Uh, and this week, I'm joined by Scott Gowdy from Ohio State University. Scott, good to talk to you again. Uh, good to see you, and good to talk to you. And thanks for inviting me. Hey, thanks for thanks for being so. Uh, I guess supportive. Uh, you've uh, in in sort of helping get the word out on on Habex. We we did a video about Habex and the other what I'm calling the new great observatories. I hope that's all right. Uh, I love that name. I, I wholly wholeheartedly approve. <laughs> right. So ask it up on my Zoom background at some point. Oh yeah, I will. I will. I, oh, that is the four, right? Links, Links, Louvoir, Habex, and Origins, and right. and so you know to go in line with was it Compton, Hubble, Spitzer, and Chandra? Uh, I think Fermi was in there as well. Okay, all right, <clears throat> but the and so you know these four next big observatories they're gonna they're gonna pick up the mantle from all of the uh, the great observatories and some of which are no longer with us. Um, right. And so Habex is one of that of that team. So so before we go into Habex, so just tell, let us know who you are and what you do. Uh, so as you said, I'm a professor at Ohio State University. Uh, I've been there since 2006. Um, I actually got my PhD at Ohio State University, and then after that, I did um, some postdoc stints. One at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey, which people may know is where Einstein finished out his career. And then I went to Harvard for a three-year postdoc, and then I came back as a faculty member at Ohio State. <clears throat> and so what do I do? I, I do all things exoplanets, I would say. I've started off in the field of microlensing searches for exoplanets. So that's kind of what I'm most known for, but I branched out into transits, and now I've worked on uh, radio velocities. I've worked on direct imaging, um, and I've one of the main areas in terms of um, not just methodologies, but uh, areas of inquiry are the demographics of exoplanets. So, you know, kind of like the census of where exoplanets live. Um, more recently, I've gotten into detailed characterization of exoplanets with uh, various tools like Spitzer. We should all have a moment of silence for Spitzer. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, the Hubble Space Telescope uh, and, uh, and more recently, even with the, the large binocular telescope. Um, and then, of course, in the future, I've done a lot of planning uh, with NASA for future missions such as HAVEX. So right. that's a very quick summary of the kind of stuff I work on. It's interesting. I did a, a video a couple of months back talking about there was a paper that came out talking about just, you know, making estimates of number of exoplanets going into the future. And they predicted that it would be, you know, by 2050 or so, we should be into the tens of millions of known exoplanets. If you just chart the existing growth curves that just follow those lines up and who knows what will be the techniques that will find it. it could very well be astrometry or um you know other you know microlensing who knows what the methods will be but it is interesting you know you talked about sort of characterizing the populations you're shifting from we found a planet to you know, of the 14,000 planets that we know of, which are in this category, they tend to have these sorts of characteristics. Like it's, like it's really moving to, we have more planets than we know what to do with. That, that's, that's very true. So really it's Kepler that brought us into what I call the statistical age. Yeah. Um, it was the first sort of um, large scale statistical mission with many thousands of detections. 
Um, <clears throat> but even before that, people had started this transition. So you're right. So the, for the first sort of decade of exoplanets, it's all like, here's my shiny new exoplanet. <laughs> isn't it? Isn't it great? Yeah. Um, now, uh, there's an amusing story behind this for me personally, is my thesis was on searching for exoplanets using microlensing, but uh, I never found any. So if you're, so I could either just not write any papers and not get a PhD, or I could do a, 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 a statistical analysis on what it meant that we didn't find any. And in fact, we were able to show that most uh, low mass stars, M dwarfs, don't have Jupiter mass planets at several uh, astronomical units. So those were the first constraints on M dwarfs. So I was immediately indoctrinated into this statistical way of thinking about things. So I used to run around for the first 10 years um, because also the, the other thing is that I grew up with the field of exoplanets. The first 51 peg was discovered a few months after I started graduate school. So me and a, a bunch of friends that probably a lot of people know, like Sarah Seeger and Josh Wynn and David Charbonneau, we all kind of grew up as gr the first er uh, era of graduate students who got their theses on exoplanets. So I went around for, you know, 10 years kind of trying to convince people to start thinking about all these planets that they're finding in the ensemble sense yeah. and trying to understand what we learned from that. And mostly people like patted me on the head and said, you know, whatever, we're busy finding our new shiny exoplanets. But eventually, I think with Kepler, it was really the revolution. We were in the statistical age. So um, several of us, uh, and Eric Mamajek's plot is probably the most famous, shows the cumulative number of exoplanet detections as a function of the year of discovery. And what you find is it's basically an exponent. It's consistent with an exponential right. increase with a doubling time of something like 27 months. 27 um, months, right. Yeah. More so, law, which but is for insane. So for the first five or six years I was in this field, I knew the name of every known exoplanet. I, I barely, I don't even know the names of exoplanets I've discovered anymore. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that just tells you how much we've moved. And, you know, yes, we have on the, on the horizon, we have Gaia, um, which is going to be exciting. Uh, the estimates of the number of planets Gaia will find range from thousands to maybe even tens of thousands. Um, we have the Roman Space Telescope, which I've worked on, which is what used to be called WFIRST. We have Plato. We have lots of other missions that are coming online, which will find planets by the thousands. Um, so we expect we expect this to continue. Will it continue to follow Moore's law? Who knows? Yeah. Uh, but uh, but maybe um, you know. And I think that and and that that just speaks to how exciting it is to be in this field right now. And, and we the methods slightly are, are starting to change. And so, for example, right. back in the beginning, it was using the radio velocity method to determine the planet. After that, the transit method came online as a way to to see the, the light dimming. Uh, and now we're entering this sort of new era of, of astrometry. And you mentioned briefly Gaia. It's funny, we've had like two big releases from Gaia so far. But the big one is about, you know, will eventually drop the one where they go, oh, oh, by the way, you know, we already mapped out a good percentage of the stars in the Milky Way. But by the way, we just found another 100,000 planets. Like, right. it's interesting to see. It sounds like astrometry is it could be the method that takes us to the next stage along this Moore's law for planets growth curve. What what other methodologies do you have a lot of hope for 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 digging up large numbers of planets? Yeah, so I mean, so that's a really good question. I mean, it, it, it's very interesting to to follow the history of of this field. And you're right, we started with radial velocity because that was the that was the technique that had sort of been developed most experimentally, and um, and then we came along with transits, and really Kepler kind of hit its stride. 
the next mission I think is Gaia for astrometry. And you're right, it's, uh, you know, so far we're getting parallaxes and proper motions of stars and stellar astrophysicists think this is great. Um, and actually exoplanet uh, hunters think it's great too because it's that whole adage, know thy uh, star and know thy planet. Right. Um, but you're right, so, you know, they're gonna drop the last data release on Gaia and they're gonna say, here's, you know, the most precise proper motions and parallaxes of, of a million stars ever. Oh, and by the way, you know, here's 10,000 or 100,000 planets. Have fun with that. Yeah. Um, you know, and and I don't I don't think we know what we're going to do with all that. Um, but then, you know, and and the reason so so there, so we they were going to move into the astro astrometric um, sort of age from transits, and I'll get back to transits because I think it, its day will come back around again. Um, but I think after that is going to come, uh, assuming it launches, which I'm very optimistic that it will, is the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope and this microlensing survey, which is also going to find many right. thousands of planets, including many hundreds of free-floating planets, which my uh, graduate student, Samson Johnson, just submitted a, published a paper that made this prediction. Um, so that's going to be the, so microlensing sort of next batter up after yeah. astrometry. And then you can ask, well, what's after that? Well, we have the Plato, the Plato mission by ESA, which is another transit mission, which will also find many thousands of transiting planets. Um, but I think if you start looking into the more distant future, obviously things get murky, but eventually we're going to reach that point, hopefully, where something like a direct imaging That's what I was wondering, mission, yeah. A direct imaging mission will allow us to detect planets, maybe not as many, but allow them to, to allow us to detect them around the nearest stars and to characterize right. them at the same time. So one of the things, so I think that the, the, the sort of the, the, the distant, the future of exoplanets is ultimately direct imaging, which is why I started getting into it with HabEx. Yeah. But it's also the case that we're going to not be as concerned with just counting planets anymore. We want to count them, but also characterize them and say, you know, how many Jupiter-like planets are there and many Neptunes and what are the... Right. Oh, I lost your audio there. Right. What, oh, oh, oh the... there we go. Okay, you're back. Right. Yeah. Now we can start syn synthesizing not only uh, demographics, but also characteristics. Yeah. And, and largely those two regions have been more separated than before. Okay, I want to go back. You you mentioned just briefly this idea of free-floating planets. I guess the other term for this sure. is, is rogue planets. And, and I think it is one of those ideas that is starting to make its way into people's minds, but it is bigger than I think anybody understands. So can we talk just a little bit about, about what are the sources of these free floating planets and, and how many could there be out there? Yeah, so it's, uh, I agree with you 100%. It's something that's really has not been in the forefront of people's minds, even people that work on exoplanets, largely because they're almost invisible by basically any technique except for gravitational microlensing. The most massive, youngest ones, <clears throat> we might, we might, and actually we have a few candidates that we've directly detected, you know, in their in their um, residual heat from formation, that light. But um, but things like the mass of the Earth, there's no way we'd be able to detect them other than using their gravity with right. gravitational. And then you only get one shot. Like, oh, we saw and, one, and then we'll never know yeah. about it again. Yeah. So you have to do you have to think really hard about how you're going to try to learn something about the ensemble population of these kinds of, of events. Um, and we, we are starting to do that. Um, in fact, just today on the archive came out, came the first. Um, the first candidate uh, free-floating planet from microlensing, this is from ground-based surveys that had a mass of roughly that of the Earth. Wow. Which is very exciting. 
And so, so that could just I be think... like a planet with the mass of the Earth just floating through space. Yep. Just there you go. And yeah. so people have largely not thought about this because it's kind of not, it's hard to do. Yeah. Um, but if you go and you look at planet formation theories, um, they actually predict that lots of planets should be chucked out of planetary systems as planets are formed. And exactly how many or what masses they are depends on exactly how chaotic or messy planet formation might be. But they all generically predict that low mass planets like Mars or Earth should be chucked out in abundance. And then you can ask, well, what are our actual constraints on how many of these free-floating planets or rogue planets there could be per star in the galaxy? Not associated with stars, but per star in the galaxy. And the answer is that there could be there could be there could be more free-floating yeah. planets than stars in the galaxy. Right. And we would have no idea. Yeah. The galaxy could be teeming with these things. Yeah. And we would not know at all. And and I just want to I just want to like to stop on that for a moment because the implications of that are enormous. That that there are I mean we know of whatever 100 to 400 billion stars in the Milky Way. It's you know we, we're pretty certain at this point that there's at least one planet per star, probably whole solar systems per star. But there could very well be as many just planets either kicked out or just formed in place out there in the Milky Way. And so when you think about what is the distance to the nearest thing, and you think, oh, it's Proxima Centauri. But no, it no. Could, there could be dozens of brown dwarfs or, or rogue planets, way stations between here and and the nearest star. And, and it's not yeah. like they're frozen ice balls. I mean, they will still have something interesting going on on these worlds right that's so i mean among other things and i, I know i hate to go too far down this road because it's ex extremely speculative of course of course but papers by it's papers by very smart people have been written that have argued that these a free-floating earth mass planet um could retain if it had a thick enough atmosphere could retain its residual heat from formation and might be habitable over billions right. of years. Yeah. So you, life, there could be life on these planets as well. Now, I don't want to go down that road. No, of course road, not. No, but, you, you, know, there's only, you only get one, right? you know, major uh, speculative discovery of life per month. And I think we've already <laughs> right. had it. Right. Yeah. And, and and the other thing is that microlensing would never be able to tell us if it was right. habitable or not. But um, another idea that people don't, I think, really haven't thought about, but there's been a couple of papers written about it. Um, is that uh, is that uh, these planets, when they get ejected from their planetary systems, they might host moons or satellites. And in many cases, those satellites will get ejected with them. And so you could have free-floating planets with a moon, yeah. a free-floating Earth with a moon. And yeah. actually, microlensing might actually allow right. you to detect that moon. And then you could get some kind of tidal interactions between the planet and the moon, which would keep it For more example, warm. For example, I mean, you yeah. know, you have radiogenic heating from, from radio isotopes. Yeah. You know, th there's lots of different speculations yeah. you can make. Yeah. And I think that, that's, uh, that's absolutely fascinating. And, and, and so, I mean, the thing that I find really interesting, obviously, again, you know, when you think about, say, the Fermi paradox, you think about how about the possibility of future exploration of the, of the galaxy. People are like, oh, it's so far to the, to the closest star. But it might be not as far to get to the closest rogue planet, to the closest brown dwarf. That in fact, you know, the the jumps that we have to take to get from world to world are still 
incomprehensibly far, but they're not, they're like a little less incomprehensibly far, which I find right. really fascinating. Let's, let's shift gears because I okay, really sure. want to get into, into Habex, but I just, I needed, I had this itch that I needed to scratch. And so let's, <laughs> let's, let's move on and let's talk about Habex. So what is Habex? Uh, so Habex is, um, is first and foremost, it's a mission concept. Um, so, um, Back in, oh gosh, I have to remember my history. 2014, I believe, uh, Paul Hertz, who's the director of the astrophysics division uh, in, in NASA, um, basically uh, gave a charge to uh, what's called the PAGS. These are the program analysis groups. It's basically an advisory group or not. They don't do advise, they do studies that then inform NASA what, to help NASA make decisions. Um, and I was actually chair of the uh, Exoplanet uh, Program Analysis Group or Exopag. And he gave the three PAGs, there's the Exoplanet, Cosmic Origins, and um, Physics of the Cosmos PAGs, the charter of, you know, if you were going to study large flagship kind of missions like Hubble, like JWST, those kinds of missions, the Great Observatory missions, if you were going to study a set of missions for the next decadal survey, which this was at the time six years in the future, but right is now quite firmly in the present as we know, um, which would you choose? And he gave us a, a selection of four. And, and so, so I and the other uh, chairs of the PAGs ran around the country talking and meeting with each other and trying to decide if these were the four missions we wanted to study, concepts we wanted to study, or if we wanted to add one or subtract one. And at the end of the day, we said, we wrote back to Paul and we said, yes, these are the four mission concepts we want to study. So the joke is that Paul basically just wanted a post-it note that said, yes, these four missions. And we spent, you know, how many thousands of dollars and way, way too much carbon dioxide flying around to, to come up with a decision that we could have made in five minutes. But anyway, these four mission concepts were called the Habitable Exoplanet Imaging Mission the uh, Large UV Optical Infrared Surveyor, the Far Infrared Surveyor, and the X-ray Surveyor. Three of these mission concepts were originated in a NASA, what's a NASA roadmap called Enduring Quests, uh, Daring Quests, Enduring Visions, which I was actually part of, where we were told to imagine the next sort of 60 years of NASA unencumbered by financial constraints, right. which it was the most yeah. fun committee I've ever yeah. been on. But also bittersweet, I'm sure. Because yeah. then at some point you, you work yourselves into this intellectual right. lather and then you're like, oh, reality. Right. But but three of these mission uh, concepts that we came up with actually ended up being one of the three of the of the four that NASA ended up studying. And then the, the other one was plucked from the 2010 Decadal Survey. That's that habitable exoplanet imaging mission. So these eventually became the Habitable Exoplanet Observatory, or HABEX, uh, the Large UV Optical Infrared Telescope, that's LUVOIR, um, the uh, Origins, which was previously the Far Infrared Surveyor, and LYNX, which was the X-ray Surveyor. Right. And just to, so, just to encapsulate stories, yeah. like LUVOIR is like Super Hubble, uh, LYNX is like Super Chandra, um, Origins is like Super James Webb, but HABEX is like is different from well, you know I, know I know i'm giving them like I'm overly simplifying what the regimes are but i but i feel like like habix isn't like an extension of an existing capability of a mission so so um i think that when we originally started this the the mission concept study which which went on for almost four uh four years and finished just this last um january was our kind of final rollout of, of our results i think i think that's the way we thought of it as yeah. well but um i would say that um links is definitely super chandra it's actually if you take the best things of chandra and the best things of athena 
which is a future L-class mission from ESA, turned it into one mission, that would be Lynx. Um, Origins is more like a super Herschel, except it's cooled down to like four Kelvin. So, so like super Spitzer. I should have said super Spitzer. Yeah, super Spitzer, super Herschel is yeah, really the, yeah. the better. If people yeah. aren't familiar with Herschel, that's another ESA mission. Yeah. Um, uh, and we'll get back to Louvoir because Louvoir is just another beast entirely, which <laughs> yeah, is yeah. super exciting. Yeah, and we've talked a lot say, about this on this channel, so people are very familiar with, with right. Louvoir. So I would say Habex is more like a super Hubble but one that's been designed from the ground up to be able to directly image and characterize Earth-like planets around nearby sun-like stars in reflected light. So it really is, is evolved to become a dual purpose telescope that has an equal science mission of filling the gap that is gonna be there when Hubble is lost. And, and unfortunately, I think we find it hard to believe because it's been around for so long, but Hubble will not be around forever. No, I'm not and listening. La, 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 I can't Yeah, it'll, it'll last forever. Not, it is. It continues to be oversubscribed by as much as it ever has, and we have not run out of things to do with it. So we really need a replacement for Hubble. Habex can do almost all the science that Hubble can do, plus it can do this additional science of the direct mission, uh, direct imaging mission uh, to look for uh, potentially habitable planets and maybe life. Louvoir is like Hubble times a factor of ten, right? It, <laughs> yeah. It's. It's, it's kind of the most ambitious UV optical infrared telescope you can imagine doing within reasonable constraints without wandering off into fantasy land that we could do now. Yeah. Um, so um, we like to think when we talk, so I work very closely with the Louvoir team. We work very closely together throughout, throughout the four-year mission study. And we like to think that they're kind of on a scale, a sliding scale. And, and HabEx is something that's kind of, the, the next, if you wanted to do the next step that was a, a better than Hubble, but also the first step in doing trying to characterize Earth-like planets, HabEx might be what you want to do. If you want to just take a giant leap into the unknown, um, then you would do something like Louvoir. Right. And so it just depends on all of the different constraints that, that, um, that we have to face when deciding where where are, we're going to put our future resources. Yeah, well, we know they're all going to be built. So let's talk about uh, what okay. HabEx can do. I certainly can hope do. so. Yeah, it's inevitable. <laughs> so what can HabEx There's do? no so way a single telescope will gobble up large amounts of budget and take away from other missions. They're right. all going to well, come in on time, on budget, and they're all going to launch within... Uh, that is, that is yeah. the... Well, so I, I do want to make one comment about that, and and, and I think this is important, is that because that's, that's a common criticism that we hear about these studies. And I think one thing that's really important is that we've learned our lesson, right? It's not like we've just forgotten everything that happened in the last 20 years. We've recognized that mistakes were made, technologies were not developed early enough, true honest to God budgets were not being developed, yeah. right? The optimal funding profiles were not being made. We've tried to avoid all of those mistakes. So we really do think we're in a better place right now. And I think you can look at Nancy Grace Roman telescope right. as a good example of a telescope that's coming in on budget, on time, despite uh, various attempts to to make that process more difficult, and and yeah. and I mean, tests came out beautifully. There's even less expensive missions in the works, plus the the lowering costs of of rocket launches. Like, I'm I'm fine with that. I think that's great, and and I, I agree with you. Um, I will I will mention one thing about Roman, which I think a lot of people aren't real. I'm working with Roman as well, um, is that we're actually like starting to like solder things together now, right? We have nine of our of, of our um, of our 12 
Did I say that right? 16 flight detectors that we need. So it's happening. It's a real thing. Um, okay, so what can Hubble HabX do that's um, that's unique? Well, like I said, it's a super Hubble, right? It has an aperture that's four meters, whereas uh, Hubble is 2.4 meters. So that means it has um, not quite twice as sharp of a of a of a um, of uh, uh, um, images, but also has um, you know a little bit less than four times the collecting area. Um, so that means it can see deeper and it can see at higher resolution, and that allows a lot more science. Uh, it could also do ultraviolet science, which again, once Hubble's gone, there's no way you can do that. Um, a friend of mine, Jason Tomlinson, who works at Space Telescope, uh, likes to say either you can have life on the ground or you can do um, UV, UV astronomy from the ground, but you can't do both. Right. Um, <laughs> so uh, so HabX will fill in that niche that, uh, that will be lost with Hubble. Um, and do it better. Um, so all of the great science that you've, we've, we've seen come out of Hubble, not only galactic science, but extra galactic science, and even planetary science, things about uh, measuring aurora from our, uh, of objects in our sol solar system, um, plumes out of uh, Europa, things like that that Hubble has done, those we can all do with HabX, but better. Right. But the Hab in HabX is habitable, right? So what can it do? It can actually... Uh, tackle this um, problem, which is which is an astonishingly hard problem. So um, you've heard this before, but I'm not sure all your podcasts um, uh, people have heard it before. So let me let me go ahead and give the analogy. Trying to detect an Earth-like planet around a nearby sun-like star is like trying to detect a firefly about five feet away from an industrial searchlight. Uh, like the ones they have at Hollywood premieres, except the firefly and the searchlight are in Los Angeles and you're standing in New York City which sounds terrifying, except when you go and you actually look up the luminosity of a firefly, which I did, and the luminosity of an industrial strength searchlight. So I went through owner's manuals for those. And it turns out a, searchlight, a firefly is about a thousand times brighter compared to a searchlight than the earth is compared to the sun. Oh, so it's easy. A factor of 10 billion. So, you know, it's about a thousand times harder than even that, that terrifying analogy. So even 10 years ago, there's no way we knew how to do this, right? Um, we didn't have the technology. We didn't know whether or not small planets were common. Now Kepler's told us they are. We have a rough, rough estimate via extrapolation, but a rough estimate of how many Earth-like planets there might be in the habitable zone of nearby sun-like stars. And our technologies, due to focused investment by NASA and others, have just come along enormously. So now we have at least two methods that we think we can suppress the light from the star, detect the light from the, the Earth-like planet, and then take a spectrum and look for signatures of water vapor, Raleigh scattering, right. so you know, it has an atmosphere, all those kinds of right. things. So, so I'd like to break that yeah. up into the two, into the two pieces. Sure. So let's first talk about how you're going to block the light from the star, because that's pretty sure. revolutionary. And then we'll talk about, but once the light is blocked from the star, what you can see on the planet. So let's talk about right. the methodologies for, for right. blocking the light. So, so just to put back that analogy, you have to block that searchlight by one factor in 10 billion, right? within uh, angular separation of five feet as seen from a distance between LA and New York. That's hard. Okay, but we, but we think we have two different ways of doing it. One is called a coronagraph, and this is a more traditional way of doing things, which uh, the technology has been developed now for, for over 10 years, more like 20 years. Um, and here the idea is you let the starlight from the, uh, into your telescope, um, and then 
if you were lucky and everything was nice and, and, and light worked as waves, or sorry, as, as particles and not waves, you could just put your thumb over the, put a little piece of metal over that star and let the planet light go by and the metal would block the starlight. Right. Unfortunately, things don't work that way. Um, and so you have to do fancy optics because you have to correct the wavefront of the light so it doesn't scatter around that piece of metal um, and then land in the place where your uh, the light from the planet might land. So can you talk about exactly how that's done? Like, like I know, like, like I know that, for example, um, there are coronagraphs operating on some of the larger observatories. Like the European Southern Observatory has a coronagraph on board, um, and there's going to be one on James Webb, uh, and there right. are others in the works. So, so there's, I mean, there's many. Others, you're yes. and you know, I sort of told you in advance, like we can handle it. Uh, the audience can handle this. So, so like the the waves are coming in, as you said, light is not behaving nicely like like little bullets. It's behaving like these waves, and so you can't just put your your thumb, your metal thumb, in front of the star because the waves are like going around what you're trying to block. So, what is right. the method that you can then actually stop those waves from from making it to your detector? Right. So the problem is that the waves interfere with each other, and so they can interfere with each other in such a way that they can actually basically go around that that little block of light. Um, so what you do is you use fancy wave optics and the coronagraph to be able to do this. So the one that Habex uses, for example, or is going to use, and, and I should say coronagraphs exist on almost all of the very large telescopes in the world, right? You mentioned a few, but there's many others. There's one, there are chronographs on Gemini, on Keck, Etc. VLT, um, but one that I'll just give you an example of a very clever technique that um, uh, call, that the Habex would base use the chronograph. It's called a vector vortex, <clears throat> and That's what the, the vector ever. vortex, which is a really cool name, right? Yeah. Vector vortex is um, is kind of like a vortex, but what it does is for uh, light that's on axis, like your star, it actually causes that light, the starlight, to interfere with itself in a destructive manner such that it basically goes away and whatever light is left gets scattered to the outside part of your beam, which you then block with a, with a different, something called the Leo stop, right? So you're using the actual wave, uh, 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 the wave um, behavior of light against itself to uh, remove on axis uh, light. Light that's off axis doesn't interfere with itself like the planet light, so it gets through safely. So that's one example. That's really interesting. That. Now you have to have very good waves, right? So that what we say, we have to have very good wavefront stability because otherwise uh, any minor imperfections in your mirror or your chronograph will cause this interference to be imperfect. So the other thing we use is deformable mirrors where we actually measure the wavefront of the light and then we actually change the shape of the mirror real time such that we flatten out these waves so that they behave as perfectly destructive waves. Is, is um, that necessary from space? Uh, yes, it's necessary from space because, like I said, imperfections on your mirror. Even if you're, if you're, if you're think your 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 telescope has to be stable to sort of picometers or tens of picometers, right? That's a really small number. Um, so yes, you still need to do those deformable mirrors from space. Huh, right. Okay. Okay. So you're, so you're essentially, you are, I mean, I think like a bit like sort of noise removal, like you're, you are, you're taking the light, you are, you're feeding the light back to itself in a, in a destructive way so that you're canceling it out again. So you've, you've blocked most of it and then whatever leaked by, you're then using that to learn how to block the rest of it. 
That's right. And, That's and right. so using this method of chronographing, you talked about one. I know there's others that are different different flavors of this, but are you able to get rid of all of it? Like how much remains? If you had your firefly and then you had the, the light that's leaking out from your star left over, how would it compare to your to your firefly? So your requirement is that it has to be more than one factor in 10 billion. Otherwise you wouldn't, otherwise, you know, you have to make sure that you knock out, uh, you know, every photon, every 10 billion photons from the star, because if even just one goes through, then it might look like a planet because um, it's 10 billion times fainter. So that's your requirement. So you build your chronograph to do that. And typically you build it to do that well within the tolerance. So um, this is what we call the contrast. Um, so the typical contrast of chronographs um, are, uh, the requirements are about 10 to the minus 11. And in the lab, we've reached something like a few times 10 to the minus 10, I believe is the best uh, contrast we've achieved from the lab. So that's really exciting because it means we're within shouting distance of being right. able to achieve this, this requirement with the, with the chronograph. And I guess, I mean, you talk about this as a, as a requirement, but I'm assuming, right, like if you have a smaller planet than you know, if you have an Earth, but it's closer to a brighter star, then the challenge gets harder. If you have a a smaller world that's closer to a star, like like it's not like once you hit that one in ten billion, you're you're done. Right. It's that it's that it's a sliding scale, and the closer you can get, the more of these planets you're going to be able to to turn up. So the requirement is typically set by trying to detect an Earth um, in, at a particular phase. Uh, uh, located at a typical distance from a nearby right. star. Right. That's the requirement. Of course, you want to do better if you can. Yeah. Because yeah. then you might be able to detect Mars, for example. Right. That would be cool. Or Earth through um, many phases. Like or as Earth it's... through many phases, right. right. And and that would be great because then you learn something about the scattering function of the atmosphere, which would tell you about what the atmosphere is made of. So, yeah. So the, the, that requirement is, is the minimum requirement in order to do our primary goal, which is Earth around sun-like stars nearby some like stars but of course we want to be able to do better um and so uh so you know we're hoping that by the time these missions get launched that our that our chronographs will be sufficiently developed and these deformable mirable technologies will be developed that we can get contrasts of more like one part in uh in a hundred billion right so right i mean like it's interesting to sort of see the development that's happening with say the the gravitational wave observatories like LIGO, like one of the advantages of having these things on the ground is they're able to use other techniques. They're able to improve the mirrors. They're able to use new ideas that have been that have been developed, like quantum squeezing, to be able to improve the the capability. But in your situation, like like once you launch, then you can't go up and and swap in new parts like like they did with with Hubble, for example. So you're sort of locked into the best possible technology that you were able to develop at the time that you that you fly. That's right. And 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 you know, there's been a long history of people, very clever people, much clever than more clever than me, coming up with ever new and more robust coronagraphs that um, that can be operated. Um, the vector vortex, the one, the reason why we chose it is it's, I told you that um, just slight movements of the telescope can cause this contrast floor to be much worse. Um, the vector vortex has a very nice uh, uh, um, vector vortex, a specific, specific kind of it called charge six, technical um, thing that doesn't really matter, but it allows us to actually be relatively insensitive to these kinds of perturbations. So instead of having to be stable at the few picometer level, we really only have to be stable at the sort of 100 picometer level 
which is still terrifying, yeah. but not nearly as terrifying. And yeah. so you're right. Um, it, it, we, we are stuck with whatever chronograph technologies that are sort of a decade before we actually launch. But the important thing is that you can't just build a chronograph that theoretically on paper in your computer blocks all the light to one part in 10, in, in 10 to the 12. And that actually has to work in an environment where you have things moving around, right? Where you have imperfect optics and all those kinds of things. So one of the things we learned from W first now Roman is that if you actually have a goal to work towards, you learn a whole lot about making these things work in practice rather than on mm. paper or even a relatively pristine lab setup where things are pretty stable and isolated. When you actually have to deal with a telescope that's moving around, and in the case of, of Roman, an aperture that's a big mess, so the light scatters around the struts that you see, um, you learn a lot about how to keep an, a, a, a system stable enough to actually be able to do this coronography. And it's to the point now that we've gotten in, on many different axes, we've solved a lot of the problems using Roman, the chronograph on Roman, which is a technology demonstrator, uh, to, we've solved them well enough that we think we can transfer those directly to, to the HabX or right. Loubois. So even though we're not going to get the contrast ratio with, with Roman, we're still learning so much about what we would actually then apply to these future mission concepts. But that's half of HabX's plan for being able right. to <clears throat> distinguish planets from the stars. So let's talk about the other half. And this is the, this is the part that nobody's done yet. Yeah, so this is by, by far my favorite my favorite part of HabX. So you're referring to the star shade, of course. And in fact, um, the hint is, you know, for the people who are listening, they can't see, but, you know, if you look at the, right. yeah, if you actually look at the picture behind Scott, you can see the, the, yeah, the star shade shape. There. Yeah, yeah. So, so star shade is an idea invented by Lyman Spitzer, uh, who did many things. Uh, it was perfected by many people, uh, in particular, there's a, a very influential paper by uh, Webster Cash on this as well. Um, and, uh, and lately, one of the big proponents of Starshade has been Sarah Seeger. Um, the basic idea behind a Starshade is <laughs> astonishingly simple, but, uh, but also semi-terrifying. Um, here, you really just are putting a thumb in front of the star, um, except in this case, your thumb is a 52 meter in diameter uh, disc, which is actually not like a disc. It's actually shaped more like a flower. You can see the petals there. So a friend of mine likes to call it a space daisy. So it's half the length of a football field. It has these very, very specific shapes so that the diffract, and when the light diffracts off the edges, it diffracts away from the, your telescope rather than into your telescope. Um, and so, and it has to, uh, so it has to be 52 meters. It flies about 75,000 kilometers away from, from Habex. Yeah. Um, and it has to, and of course, you can't just throw this thing up like a, a, a Frisbee. You have to have it all, you know, uh, uh, furled up, right? And then it has to unfurl uh, to a precision that is roughly uh, about a millimeter in, in, in the lateral tolerance. So it has to be flat relative to the sky to about a millimeter. The edges have to be precise to about a micron. So, and then it has to fly in formation with your telescope to about a meter. Right. Um, so, um, so you have to figure out how to wrap it up and then have it unravel. And hopefully you want it to unravel on its own such that it doesn't require you to uh, have motors or anything to unravel it. So you want it to do it on its own. So they use, actually they use techniques of origami to figure out how to fold this thing up in a way that once you let go of the, of the uh, things that are holding it together, it naturally wants to unfurl into this shape. 
And tests have been done that shows that you can furl, you can you know, roll it up, have it unfurl, roll it up, have it unfurl, and it always unfurls to within that tolerance of one millimeter. It's quite amazing. So there's a Starshade Lab at Jet Propulsion Laboratory, Starshade Lab, um, that I've been to a few times. And they have a prototype. It's about, I think, a one quarter prototype of one of these things, all rolled up. And it's this very clever design where it's mechanically, it wants to unfurl, uh, but they have little rods holding it in. And you just lift those rods out and then it wants to unfurl. So they had it in this, um, this you know, rolled up configuration. I'm standing like five feet away from it. And I'm like, how many pounds of torque are there that are, that are the, these little rods are holding? And they're like, you really don't want to know. I'm like, and if one of them breaks and they're like, you don't want to know. And right. So I backed up. Right, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you know, um, so you're right. No one's done anything like this, right? Right. And we really want to, we would want to build a scale model, which already now you're, so we had to go and uh, not we, but some of the people in the Havoc scene had to figure out if there are actually buildings in California that were big enough to test a scale model, because if there weren't, we would have to build one and that would be a risk and a cost right. to the mission concepts. Turns out there are, and that's not a big problem. So we've built like one half or one quarter scale models of one of the pedals to show that we can manufacture them to the right tolerance we can. Um, we've done these tests to see that they, they unfurl. We've done a lot of work and a lot of this has been funded by NASA. And so what sounds like sort of science fiction, it now, you know, chronographs were like this far ahead of star shades a decade ago and the star shades of, you can't see this, and the star shades have basically caught up to so that their technology maturity level right. is almost the same as that of chronographs. In, in theory. In theory, Right, there are not There are not star shades operating on, um, on dozens of high-end observatories around planet Earth. Well, that we know of. Right. <laughs> we know, yeah, someone could I've have. Been, a, I've, sure. been, I've been told that there aren't, right. uh, but there right. are large deployable structures that we that we may or may not know about that 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 demonstrate at least some part of this technology. But you know, right. this is actually one of the biggest challenges with the Starshade is that NASA loves loves to test things end to end. This is part of the reason why James Webb Space Telescope has been delayed and was more expensive than people thought. Because people wanted to put the whole thing together, shake it, make, cool it down, you know, increase its temperature, make sure nothing broke, yeah. right? You can't do that with a starshade. There's no way you can right. fly a starshade 75,000 kilometers away from a telescope on the ground right. and test it to make sure it works. So you have to use engineering, you have to use scalability arguments and things like that to show the, that this is actually gonna work in space. Right. Um, and one of the things that people worry a lot about is this formation flying. That actually turns out to be one of the easiest things that, to, that we can do. And we've actually largely retired that technological risk. Right. Um, there's other risks of, you know, can we make these things sharp enough? And what happens if there's some micrometeorite hits the edge and there's a chink, right? Can we deal with those kinds of right. um, imperfections? So you talked about, I mean, you've got this one part in a billion uh, dimness that you're t attempting to achieve. So- Ten 10 billion just 10 oh sorry 10 billion i apologize yeah you know that's, a, that's an order of magnitude but but what what does the starshade then bring to the table that the coronagraph isn't already doing so the great thing about the starshade is that because it is so far away from you the diffraction optics are uh not nearly as bad okay so as long as you make it with this precise shape with these petals none of the light from the star ever makes it into your telescope which means you can have any old crappy telescope you want and you don't have to worry about the starlight bouncing off of imperfections or diffracting off the struts or any of that 
it's not required. You just have the star shade, and as long as it satisfies its its requirements, none of the starlight, or essentially none of the starlight, will get into your aperture. And you can get contrast of 10 to the minus 12, theoretically. So you could launch Habix without a chronograph using you just could. the star shade. And uh, we can get back to that if you want. Um, the other great thing about a star shade is that chronographs are inherently, and this does, should make sense because we're talking about diffractive optics, are inherently chromatic. They depend on the wavelength of the light, which means if you want to take a spectrum, you have to take it in small chunks, right? Yeah. And we want a spectrum that covers basically the entire visible plus some ultraviolet plus some near infrared because that allows us to get ozone, right. water vapor, the whole suite of species that we want to detect. <clears throat> so with chronographs, you have to take this one at a time where you have to have a massive chronograph with like 15 channels, which would be unwieldy and incredibly expensive and risky. But with a star shade, because the, the light never makes it into your telescope, it's essentially achromatic, which means you can get a broadband spectrum in one shot, which not only saves you time, but also allows you to be very competitive with the smaller right. apertures. Okay. And that's one of the great things about a star shade. All right, so so just to sort of follow on the story here, you've got a telescope that is uh, four times the light gathering power of Hubble with higher sensitivity, able to view in a range of, of the electromagnetic spectrum that lets people see uh, very interesting features in, say, the atmosphere of a planet. You've got the ability to block the light from the stars so that you can have as good a view of a planet as you could possibly hope for with a with a telescope that big. What are you going to be able to see? What is what will you be able to um, find out about that world? And this is where the HAB part, I think, comes in. Right. <clears throat> so, um, so, you know, obviously, uh, what we're looking for is kind of life as we know it. And we're looking for habitable planets as we know them. <clears throat> so what does that mean? That means a rocky planet with a relatively thin atmosphere that has liquid water oceans on its surface, but not too much liquid water because we don't want a water world because that might cause problems for habitability. With such a planet, if it looked like the Earth like does today, we would see certain features in the spectrum, right? So we would see um, we would see at the blueward edge of the of the of the spectrum, the light would just drop off dramatically, and that's because uh, ozone. You know, O3 uh, absorbs sunlight very well, which is why we don't get immediately fried when we step outside. We just get a bad sunburn. If we but we don't outside. get to have those ultraviolet telescopes either. Right. And that's right. We yeah. can't have life. We can have life on the ground or ultraviolet astronomy from the ground, yep. but we can't have both. <clears throat> then as we go towards the red, we would see a, um, we would see a rise once we get past the ozone. Then we would start to see it to fall off again. And that would be the blue of the sky, which is why the sky is blue, that's due to Raleigh scattering. And that would tell us something that, it, A, it has an atmosphere. Raleigh scattering in our atmosphere is mostly due to nitrogen. So we would know there are some species like nitrogen that actually scatters light and tends to scatter blue light more than, than red light. So it has an atmosphere and we could get some sense of how much there is. As we continue to go, we see a small depression again due to ozone. And then we see this really sharp feature where the, a lot of the light is being absorbed and that's due to oxygen. O2. And as we know, all oxygen on the earth is created by life. And if you destroyed all life in the earth, it would quickly get absorbed by other species. As you keep going redder, you start to see carbon dioxide, which as we know is a, therm a uh, thermostat on the earth. Um, and then you would start to see water vapor features. And these are like blindingly obvious, right? Um, and then as you go to the near infrared, just beyond what your eyes can see, you see more and more of these water vapor features. They get more and more 
um, uh, larger and larger, uh, more optically thick, so they're much easier to detect. So the water vapor, the carbon dioxide, the Raleigh scattering, those would all tell you that this is potentially a habitable world that might have liquid water on its oceans. Um, and then the oxygen would be what we call biosignature. This would be an indicator that you might have biological activity. It's not a smoking gun, right. unfortunately. There are abiotic ways of producing oxygen. Um, and and you'll, you're going to be hearing lots of similar sorts of discussions when we start talking about phosphine. And yes. Beans. As yeah, and we've talked a lot about this on the happened. channel. I've already, I've already prepared all my, all my viewers that there's no smoking gun biosignature at this point. But, but I guess when you know when there's you, no one smoking, no one. But I guess that's the question, right? It's when you talk about that, you know, we're seeing this over here, and then we're seeing this, and then we're seeing this, and then we're seeing this, and then we're seeing, you know, maybe you're going to see the red edge of from photosynthesis, that's right? right? That 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 it's more like instead of you making like when I think about like say the Venus discovery of, of phosphine, it's like this one very specific chemical and they're not sure, you know, they don't know of an abiotic way that it could be produced by Venus. We know that it's produced by life. This is weird. People need to check. But but the way you're kind of painting this picture about looking at the spectra of one of these worlds, you're seeing this, you know, you're taking planet Earth with its spectra and you're sort of laying it over top and seeing something that looks very familiar it rhymes right so so the way i like to say this and and i think this is important in, in contrasting this with the, the the phosphine discovery which which let me just say i think is super exciting and i'm really interested in seeing you know what how this pans out but in, in the case of phosphine you found a, a chemical that um, a, a species that you don't know how, if it can be formed abiotically, but that doesn't mean it can't be, just because there might be some chemical pathway, as the authors themselves say, that could that we just haven't thought of yet. Yeah. And you're finding it on a, on a planet that really is not the first planet you would expect to be habitable. Now, I know that there's you know ideas from Carl Sagan that have been explored by Sarah Seeger about how you might have a, 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 an ecosystem in the upper atmosphere. Weirder things have been found, so, you know, um, I'm, I'm not sure about that. That's of, pretty weird. That's the weirdest thing. But weird things I don't happen. Know. I, I mean, I found a planet that's hotter than most stars. I, I my bar <laughs> for weird is pretty high. Um, so, uh, but, but yeah. What I like to say is like, think of the context of this, right? This is a, 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 a this would be a, a, a planet where it looks has all the hallmarks of looking like an Earth-like planet. And then we see a biosignature on it. Again, it wouldn't be a smoking gun, but it would really bolster the case. Yeah. And there's other things we can do. We look, can look for glint off of the atmosphere, off of this uh, surface ocean by a specular reflection. And that would be an almost slam dunk that you have a surface ocean, which by itself would be very, very indicative. If we, if we have a sufficiently good case, we can look for, try to map out continents and oceans by using variability. There's lots of things we can do, but the real thing we can do Right, is that if we find that pale blue dot and has the biosignatures, has all the evidence that it might look like Earth or some protozoic Earth or some earlier Earth, we're not confining ourselves just to the modern day Earth. Um, that's just going to get the public super excited and just like the phosphine has. And what are we going to do? We're going to launch something that can do even better and hopefully can detect not only oxygen, but methane. And if we can detect both oxygen and methane, that is almost the nail on the coffin mm -hmm. that it basically has to be life. Now, I'm not going to say it is right. because scientists are very clever and they're always find a way out of everything. Yeah. But, yeah. If, but, but, but methane and oxygen do not like to coexist. 
And if we see them both, that's yeah. signal of disequilibrium chemistry. And life is one of, one of the hallmarks of life is disequilibrium chemistry. It, it really, so, it seems to me though that that the that looking for any one biosignature is probably a dead end. That it is that that it's a chord. That it's it's a whole bunch of things all there present at the same time in the distributions that seem to make sense that it that that seems to be the way this is this is leading that any time that the hope was that you just go oh we found oxygen done slam dunk there it is we know there's life there and now it's no no, no. you can't just say you found water you can't just say you found oxygen but you can say we found these 17 things all in the ratios that seem to indicate life as we as we understand it yeah, I think that's a great point. I think another point that I think, you know, gets so often gets lost, and maybe it's because these missions are so ambitious, I'm not sure. But people are like, well, we're going to go, we're going to go and we're going to launch HabX, we're going to find a good candidate, we're going to say as his biosignatures, and then we're just going to stop doing astronomy from then on. No, of course not. Of course not. No, yeah, yeah, then, yeah. then what we're going to launch Louvoir, which actually might be able to detect uh, methane and oxygen on yeah. the same planet. Right. This is not forest. This is not the last step. Yeah. This is absolutely the first step. Yes. And if we can just make that first step, that would be great. And that's part of the reason why I have this in my background is I want people to recognize that this is not like a one winner, you know, takes all one mission and we're done with astronomy. We can all go home. Yeah. Right. It, it's it really is. We need to do all of these things, not just to look for life but to do everything else that we can do with astronomy. And so, so and so like Habex is like the first mission that will deliver on the hope of being able to image an Earth-sized world orbiting a sun-like star, which we don't even know of any examples yet um, in the habitable zone, and, and to be able to, to see if it seems to have a characteristic signature of water and, and atmospheric you know, carbon dioxide and, and all these kinds of things. It says this is the most, not only do we now know of an Earth-like planet, but but we know a lot more. We can see the ocean glinting off the surface of the right. of the planet, etc. So so let's talk about how many you'll be able to do. I mean, it sounds to me like trying to wait for a telescope and its starshade, which is tens of thousands of kilometers apart, that doesn't give you a lot of planets that you can look at. No. So, I, so th this is where I, you know, I talk about Habex as being the first step and Louvar being the first big leap, right? Um, uh, you know, Habex is much less ambitious than Louvar. Habex, uh, by our estimates, um, uh, and, and I should say we've re retired a lot of uncertainties, both in the technology, but also we didn't know if stars were too dusty to hide that they would hide Earth-like planets. We know that small planets are common, so we're much less confident now, but much more confident now. But nevertheless, the numbers are not large, just to be honest. It's roughly of order 10 um, planets uh, in the habitable zone that we could image and take their spectrum. So you're going to give the full treatment to maybe 10 planets. Maybe 10 planets. Yeah. Now we're going to get the full context. We're going to get the other planets in the system, yeah. a lot of yeah. them and all that kind of stuff. But no, it's only 10. So if... Yeah. If Eta if Earth, which is the frequency of potentially habitable planets in the habitable zone of sun-like stars, right, is whatever value we assume, which is roughly 25% based on Kepler, um, if Eta life, in other words, the fraction of those systems that actually have life is small, then we're then ha then Habex might not find that, and that right. would tell, but that would tell us something very profound, right? It right. means that even if you set up all the conditions just right. It doesn't mean life forms or simple, even simple life forms automatically. Yeah. 
Now, Louvoir, which is one of the great things about it is, you know, it would have a sample of more like 30 to 50, depending on which version you like, the smaller or the larger version. Yeah. And so there, if Ada Earth was small, can't be very small, but relatively small, they'd still have a chance of being able to find one. Um, so the question is, do we do Habex first and then Louvoir, or do we go directly to Louvoir? I don't really weigh in on that. I think that it's inevitable that we will do something like Louvoir. The right. question is, we want to take that next step first, or we want to take some intermediate step first. I don't know, but I um, mean that's the way I like to think about it. I mean, the I mean, even Louvois would work nicely with a star shade as well, right? Okay, so you, maybe, maybe. <laughs> that's actually you bring up an excellent question. So Louvois' study did not baseline a star shade. It wasn't an appendix, but they talked about it. But it is the case that the larger the telescope you need, you get, and so uh, Louvois B is eight meters. Louvois A is 15 meters, I think. Um, it depends on whether it's inscribed or circumscribed. But anyway, um, you need, even for Louvoir B, you might be able to get away with it with a 72 meter star shade. So that's 50% larger than the Havoc star shade. Yeah. It hasn't been studied in detail. It needs to be studied in detail. It'll be but, fine. It'll be fine. But it would have to be bigger. Yeah. Well, it, it would, and it would take a lot longer for it to move across the sky because it would have to be further away. So would it be fine? Maybe, I yeah. don't know. And I think it's very important that we study that because that might end up being the sweet spot. We don't know. So we think of the, the both study teams think of Habex and Louvoir as sort of bracketing the range of, of plausible missions that could do this. Um, that one, on one end that are actually feasible and within scope of at least, you know, current uh, ideas of what our constraints are. And the one and the other one is basically big enough that we can actually do it. But, but the sweet spot might very well might be in between. And, I, and it might very well be that the decadal survey comes back and says, study that sweet spot, study, study this continual emissions, right. find that sweet spot and let us know what that is. But, but I mean, can a smaller telescope use a bigger star shade? No. So, well, so, so it's got to be right fit. Size, telescope and star yeah, shade have to fit perfectly. two limitations. One is that the smaller your telescope, the small, your larger your resolution. And so you can't distinguish the planet from the star. And the other thing is you just need to collect a lot of photons. Right. An Earth-like planet at 10 parsing, these things are really faint. So. I, I guess I just wonder if there's a way that you can make those two separate technologies, right? That you're that one team is working on building bigger and better star shades that then multiple telescopes are able to ah. use them. So this is the, here's an interesting alternative path which we have not discussed. What if we built a star shade that we went that we used in conjunction with Roman? Now Roman is not the telescope you want to uh, to do direct imaging, as I've told you. It's got a horrible pupil was not designed for it. And the chronograph is only gonna get something like 10 to the minus eight uh, contrast, which is nowhere near what you need for an Earth. But remember a star shade, any old crappy telescope you have, you can do it, right? So St Sarah Seeger led a study for star shade rendezvous mission, which is a smaller star shade, I think about 32 meters, um, but I may be wrong about that. It's roughly 32 meters, I think, that would rendezvous with, with Roman and would actually be able to go and look. And it, if it were lucky, it might actually be able to find an Earth-like planet around a nearby sun-like star. It probably would not be able to take its spectra, at least right. not in the, in the way that we can, yeah. but it could find it. And that would that might just be enough of an impetus for us to then go do the next right. thing that we could or, take. Or James Webb could have one. James Webb, uh, yeah, James Webb could as well, but right. um, there are other constraints Maybe. there. James Webb right. has a finite. But it, but it just feels to me like like uh, you know once you've got the geometry of an of a unfolding like once that's been figured out, then 
then you just make them of different sizes and every telescope gets one or yeah. that there is yeah. a, you know what I mean? Like it's, I mean, who knows? To be fair, star shades are not free. <laughs> they're, they're, not they're, free, they're... but if it's the ability to observe. Um, yeah, I yeah. wish there was a way, I mean, I don't know if there is a way to get something from Earth, but I, I can't imagine, you know, a geostationary orbit or something, a way that an Earth-based telescope could actually use a star shade. There, there have been there have been discussions about this. John yeah. Mather, in particular, has, has 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 looked into this. I'm not an expert on it. It's he hard. Does have a Nobel Prize, so he does have a Nobel yeah, Prize. It's guy. hard. Yeah. It's hard. So you'd have to use the ELTs, and your star shade would have to be about 100 meters in diameter. Yep. And it could only look for about I think a few minutes that the alignment is right because you know that pesky Earth is yeah. rotating. Yeah. It's tough, but it's worth looking That's into. That's a neat idea. Yeah. So uh, we've sort of reached the end of our of our time, but I just want to. If all goes well, when could we see TabX launch? So according to our uh, technology development plan, assuming that we get the right funding profile, which would be a big if, mm -hmm. um, and, it, and, and to be fair, it's a slightly out of the box if, if you just take the current funding of, of the astrophysics division and extend it out. It's just slightly over that, but not by much. Um, if we did that, uh, we could, we could and we didn't hit any hurdles and all those other yeah. caveats. Um, we could launch in 2035. 2035. Yeah. Right on. That sounds amazing. I, uh, I really, uh, you know, I've been, I've already been talking about this for several years. I'm going to, I'm sure be doing many more videos and, and conversations about this into the, into the future. It was great to be able to talk to you directly and for the, for the audience, they can sort of hear the latest thinking on, on Habex and a little bit on some of the other new great observatories, um, yes. which I think and is go, go to newgreatobservatories.org. It's a fun website. Perfect. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, uh, Scott, thank you so much for taking the time to All chat right. with us today. If people want to follow, you, you mentioned newgreatobservatories.org as a way to follow on. If people want to follow your work directly, where should they go? Uh, well, you can just Google my name. Uh, just make sure you put it Scott Gowdy in quotes because there's this pesky architect named Gowdy. Right. Um, right. Uh, and you can find uh, information about me, news stories. If you want to go to the Habex, you can just do a Google search on Habex. It'll take you to the JPL website. You can learn all about it. You can read the 500-page report if you really want to, <laughs> uh, but you might want to read the executive summary, which is only like 20 pages. Fantastic. So. Yeah. Th these documents are very readable. I've, I know I've read them. Uh, I enjoy them and uh, use them for working on the, the, the videos and stuff that I do. So uh, yeah, don't be afraid to look into some of these, these papers. Um, all right. Well, thanks, Scott. Uh, well, thank you for taking the time. For and, uh, you know, let us know. Definitely come back when you found a, a, an Earth uh, planet. <laughs> I, I will indeed. All right. Thanks, thanks very much, Peter. All right. Take care. Bye.